Coming up on today's show, Jean Charest has vowed to repeal the consumer portion of carbon taxes in Canada. If he's elected Conservative leader, there are a group of Canadians who haven't been charged with any terrorism-related offences, but they're on no-fly list and they're just stuck in this limbo. And we'll chat with Miles Goodwin, lead singer of the great Canadian rock and roll band April Wine. Where we are in terms of the Conservative leadership candidates and their plans to deal with climate change. We know Pierre Polyev has vowed to scrap the Liberals' carbon tax. Jean Charest, a little more nuanced in some ways, he's he's put forward a plan that has uh, a number of different proposals. I think the headlines, the ones that leapt out to a lot of people were, uh, first of all, getting rid of the consumer portion of the carbon tax. Big industry, large emitters would still have to pay it, but you and I wouldn't. Um, and on top of that, uh, adding some incentives to other areas. So let's find out how this plan stacks up. Does it make sense? Does it work? Is it workable? We're going to chat with Stuart Elgie, who is the director of the Environment Institute at the University of Ottawa. He is also uh, someone who was given the charade plan to provide feedback. So he's seen it in detail, and he joins us now to give us his take. Uh, Mr. Elgie, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. You're welcome. So, overall, big picture with what Sheree is proposing, good, bad, is it effective, is it credible, is it workable? Yeah, it's definitely a credible climate plan. I mean, I, I don't agree with every part of it, but, but overall, he's put together a plan that would actually meet a target. And I think Canadians have heard a lot of plans and targets over the last 25 years, and we haven't met them. Um, the yeah. thing Sheree has going for him is he's actually got a track record as premier and as federal environment minister of actually delivering on climate action, building a cleaner economy, and in many ways, you know, actions speak louder than plans. Okay, so let's go through a couple of them. This is what Sheree had to say about it uh, in his own words. He was talking about the plan, um, a carbon price on emitters, not consumers. This is what he had to say in an interview with Global News. We want to keep it simple and as direct as possible. And, uh, you know, we, we feel that if we go down this route, we're going to be more efficient, more flexible, able to achieve better results quite clearly than if we go down the route of a more complex uh, consumer tax. So, I mean, I don't know if the consumer tax is seen as complex by a lot of people. A lot of people don't like it. I can tell you that. But what's your take on removing that portion of the carbon tax from consumers? Well, I I like the fact that he agrees about putting a carbon price on industry emitters. It's good to have a recognition that it actually works. Um, To be honest, having a uh, carbon price across the whole economy is the lowest cost way to reduce emissions. There's just tons and tons of research showing that a carbon price is lower cost than using heavy-handed government regulations to reduce emissions, and that's the alternative. Um, the way the Liberals have done it, where they're actually rebating the carbon price back to citizens, it means most people come out ahead financially. So it is the better approach. That said, there are other ways to reduce emissions. Charest is talking about you know, having a, a, a standard for lower carbon fuels, um, a standard for clean electricity. And you know, truthfully, that's the way the U.S. is likely to go, too. The U.S. isn't going down the pricing route. And he's talked about aligning with the U.S. approach and creating North American-wide standards. So that approach could work. It wouldn't be my first choice, but there's more than one way to skin a cat, as they say. And Sheree has put together a credible plan that looks like it would deliver on emission reductions and clean growth. He's also talking about, you know, I don't know if you can characterize it as more of a carrot approach than a stick approach. Instead of the tax on the consumer side, he's offering tax incentives to do things on, um, you know, uh, vehicles, for example, with, you know, electric vehicles, things like that. Things incentivizing lower emission um, activity rather than taxing 
emissions intensive activity, if that makes any sense. I did a horrible job of explaining that. But <laughs> he seems to be more focused on trying to incentivize than to punish. He's going to have to work on that soundbite for the uh, debate. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's the part of his plan that really caught my eye, and I, I really like it, actually. I mean, and it's going to do many of the same things that a carbon price will do, but it will do it with incentives rather than penalties. You know, instead of uh, having to pay a higher tax for high-carbon decisions, you'll actually get a tax break for low-carbon decisions. Yeah. Um, so if you want to invest in an electric vehicle, you know, better windows, a heat pump, um, those kind of things, you'll actually get the HST off it. Um, and so I like that idea a lot. It has the same kind of effect as a carbon tax, but does it with incentives rather than penalties. You mentioned it briefly earlier, you know, the United States and talking about coming up with more realistic goals in this country. And I, I think he has a point in terms of we set a lot of ambitious goals that we never meet. Um, it seems to be more credible to say we want to set goals that are actually attainable. In terms of the goal setting, what do you think about what he's saying about targets that he's set? Well, I, I agree with what you've just said, right? We've, I think we kind of have target fatigue in this country. I mean, the first Kyoto target was 1997, and, and we've missed three targets since then. I mean, to give them credit, I think the, the Trudeau government has brought in a lot of climate policies, and they are making real progress. Uh, I don't think anyone can say right now whether, whether we're going to get all the way to their target. The Auditor General yesterday said he thinks it'll be a real stretch. Yeah. But Sheree has set a credible target. He's he's going with the target that... that Trudeau himself said at Paris in 2015, and that Harper had set. And to be honest, if Canada could meet that target, if we really could get to a 30% reduction by 2030, I think it's something we could be proud of. It'll build real momentum. And so, as I said before, I mean, to me, I think the most important thing is that we're moving in the right direction. And Sheree has actually walked the walk as Premier and Federal Environment Minister. He's someone who has shown a real commitment to taking action on climate change, building a clean economy. And I think in many ways, you know, that gives him a credibility that no one else in the leadership race has on this issue. How important is that? Like you said, I mean, as the conservative leader, he knows that the carbon tax is just hated by certain members of his party. So he's making some changes around there that might get him some, uh, make some headway for him. And, And like you say, he has the credibility as someone who's been environment minister in government before. So in terms of his ability to bring forward a plan that might reach a broader consensus than, say, Trudeau or Polyev, he's in a good spot. Has he done it with this plan, do you think? Yeah, I mean, as I said, I think it's a credible plan. I mean, you know, the 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 part about not having an economy-wide carbon price, I think, is probably not the ideal policy approach, but yeah. there are other ways to get there. And, and so I think, yeah, he, he's got a credible plan. And what we really need in this country, to be honest, is to knit together the federal government provinces so they're all working together and we send a long-term signal to investors because, I mean, this is in one way it's a climate issue, but it's really ultimately an economic issue, right? The world is moving towards a cleaner, low-carbon economy. Every nation in the world has signed the Paris Accord. All the largest banks and investors have committed to decarbonize and to net zero. And so that's where investment and jobs are going to be in the next 20 or 30 years. It's going to be investing in electric vehicle manufacturing, producing clean aluminum and steel, biofuels. And yeah, oil and gas aren't going to go away. I mean, there's still going to be a long transition where they're still going to use it, and Canada can can compete for its share. We need to clean up our production. So we need to come together as a nation, and what investors want to know is that countries have a stable direction and they're committed to this low-carbon future. So if Sheree can weave together the provinces around that and ideally align us with the U.S., 
um, that'll be really good news, not just for the climate, but for our economic future and for jobs for our kids. Big task, but uh, maybe he's off on the right foot with this plan. Um, Stuart, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. You are very welcome. That is Stuart Elgie, who is the director of the Environment Institute at the University of Ottawa. And as I say, he, he had a copy of Charest's climate plan to sort of go through it and offer his assessment. So uh, interesting to get his take on it. And, and you know what? I mean, we'll see. Charest is definitely positioning himself as a middle-of-the-road kind of a guy. Um, we'll see how effective it is within the party. That's, that's job one, right? Win the, the PC leadership. Uh, will he be able to do that? I don't know. Coming from behind, no question. Really interesting discussion. You're going to like this. This is uh, it's a pretty fascinating situation that I don't think, uh, well, I certainly didn't know a lot about. Uh, Global News has been doing a deep dive into, it's sort of this gray area, really is the best way of putting it, a gray area of national security with people suspected of terrorist ties or terrorist activity or just a threat of terrorism around this person and what we do with them. Uh, we don't charge them, but we it's a really interesting discussion. And the person who's been digging into it is Stuart Bell, an investigative journalist with Global News, and he joins us now. Stuart, thanks for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Good afternoon. Yeah, so you've been taking a look at some of these classified government reports into this um, this gray area. Just describe it. Basically, these are people who are suspected of being threats of terrorist activity, possibly? Yeah, I mean, you know, when it comes to, to terrorism in Canada, we, we hear about the big, splashy arrests and charges. Um, but it turns out there's a whole other level of cases that are going on that we just don't hear about. And they're taking place kind of in this gray area of national security, as you said, where police are investigating people that they suspect um, are involved in terrorism, that they, they suspect are threats to Canada's national security, um, they don't charge them, but they have been using a number of other tools to to deal with them. And that could include, uh, as we reported in our story, um, denying people passports, um, seizing their passports so they can't leave the country to, uh, to you know, engage in terrorism, to join foreign terrorist groups, uh, things like the no-fly list, yeah. uh, things like peace bonds even, which often have... Um, uh, attached to them, a, a ban on travel or having to surrender your passport. So it's just kind of the, I guess what we've kind of disclosed is this whole other level of uh, anti-terrorism that's going on that operates in this kind of fuzzy zone where it's not entirely transparent, it's not entirely clear, and the methods that are being used um, are having, you know, some impact, but uh, it's short of charging people. Okay, so just some of the specifics around and some of these cases, and I imagine, you know, it's not going to be a blanket that one size fits all, but at least in some cases, we must be talking about citizens or, you know, if we're talking about passports, we're talking about people that have access to Canadian rights and freedoms, right? Yeah, I mean, we're talking about Canadian citizens who have come to the attention of Canada's national security or, you know, RCMP, CSIS, whatever. Yeah. Um, because of their alleged activities. Do we know what and, kind of activity we're talking I mean, are, are, are they seen to be terrorist threats themselves or fundraising, facilitating, or is it all of the above? Yeah, it's a, it's a mix of things. So the cases, I mean, these cases are very, very difficult to get access to, but they occasionally surface in, in courts, and this is where we found some of them. Um, so they include people 
who are alleged to have been training, uh, preparing to join ISIS, um, people who have are alleged to have gone overseas to um, to participate in terrorism in Pakistan, for example, targeting India, and are alleged to be involved in fundraising and facilitation of that. Um, there's a woman who lived in Edmonton at the time who was uh, accused um, by investigators of having not only been a member of al-Shabaab, the Somali terrorist group, but of having uh, recruited and financed another um, Canadian to travel to Syria to join ISIS. So it's a whole it's a whole mix of kind of things that suggest their involvement. Yeah. But for whatever reason, the the authorities haven't had enough or haven't uh, brought charges against them. So what they do is deny them the right to travel to leave the country. Now, first of all, that seems a little counterintuitive on some level, Stuart. I don't want to be extremely self-serving here, but at the same time, if you have somebody who you suspect of being a terrorist threat, confining them to the country seems counterproductive in some ways. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, that's that's been sort of the tactic, is to deny them the ability to travel through whatever means. Um, and you're right, it's, it makes sense on one level, but not on another. Yeah. So on, in one sense, if somebody wants to go overseas to join a terrorist group, um, uh, you know, they, why not let them go, I guess? Um, they're not Canada's problem anymore. Um, that would be the argument. Um, and, uh, and also accompanying that is our experience with cases where we have done that. We have denied travel to people, to extremists, and they have they've gone to plan B, which is basically, okay, I can't leave to join a terrorist group. I'm just going to take action here in Canada. Exactly. So you've had uh, the Aaron Driver attack in Ontario, for example, the two attacks in in uh, Ontario and uh, in Ottawa and St. John's in 2014. But on the other flip side of that, I guess, is the thinking that um, once Canadians do go abroad and join terrorist groups, they they then uh, receive training and indoctrination and networking, which they can then bring back to become even more dangerous upon their return to Canada. So it's a debatable tactic. Yeah. Um, Canada's taken the position that um, that this is the way to go. This is part of their strategy is to deny travel. Um, but the, the issue is that they don't charge these people. That's the that's, thing, yeah. I mean, legally speaking, what does the law say? Can you do these sorts of things without laying any charges? I mean, do they have a right? Is there any recourse for them? A, a trial of any kind? Or is this just something the government can arbitrarily do to Canadian citizens? Well, it's not arbitrary, but there are there are provisions that which police have discovered they can lean on to uh, to do this, so there's a there's a national security clause in the passport uh, legislation. For example, it says that if you're deemed to be a national security threat, you can be denied, denied a passport. Um, there's a no-fly list, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, they, there are these things, and they do have a much lower threshold uh, that has to be proven in order to do them, which is why they're controversial and why people like the, those that we spoke to in our story are complaining, saying that, you know, they really haven't had a chance to defend themselves against these these allegations uh, because the, the bar is set so low and much lower than a criminal trial. And on the other hand, you know, the terrorism, Canada's anti-terrorism criminal laws exist for a reason, and if people are engaged in terrorism, why aren't they being prosecuted for it? Yeah, it's it's fascinating. It really is. Stuart, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us and giving us a little background on this story. 
Thank you very much. That is Stuart Bell, an investigative journalist with Global News. If you want to read the story, uh, you can find it on the Global News website. Uh, There's one case in particular that's fairly well documented, a man from Montreal um, who has been sort of in this limbo, this this gray area for, for some time now, basically just told, no, that's it, you're not getting a passport. And uh, he's sort of been waiting and uh, it's been in and out of court and all kinds of things, but this happens more than you might think. And, you know, it's it's... I understand uh, the arguments from both sides, but at the same time, it's sort of, how can you just, arbit- I mean, like like Stuart said, okay, it's, it's not arbitrary, but it, the government has a right to do this, and there, there's, there's no trial, there's no hearing, there's no court cases, just the power that police can use where they um, go ahead and put in this kind of restriction where you're not allowed to have a passport. That's it. End of story. April Wine, all-time great Canadian rock and roll band, um, founded by legendary Miles Goodwin, who's to this day the lead singer of April Wine, and he is about to take the show on the road for the first time in a while as a tour kicks off, um, well, next week with a stop in Regina and then one at uh, River Cree, just outside of Edmonton. We are delighted that Miles has time to join us this morning. Mr. Goodwin, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Hi there. I hear you're, you got some, you have some snow out that way. Yeah, if you can believe it. It was like, I think it was 17 degrees yesterday afternoon, and and today it's snowing. But it's supposed to be really nice again on the weekend. So, I mean, you know how it is in this part of the world. At this time of year, anything can happen. Yeah, that's true. And hopefully we won't see any snow in our, our first trip in uh, a couple of years. Tell me about that. I mean, just the fact that you get a chance to get out and do what you've been doing for so long, get in front of an audience and bring that music to the people. How exciting is that for you? Well, it is exciting. You know, it's really nice that uh, you know, the band, like we're all friends and a crew and, and we're family and we haven't seen our you know, haven't seen each other in a while. We did do a couple of shows uh, at the end of last year, but that's been it in, in two years and three, four months, whatever the total is with the COVID restrictions. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting. I mean, I just heard a bit of older there. Yeah. And I just remembered how much energy I'm going to need for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've had two years to get yeah. ready, though. I'm sure. You're That's right. That's right. That, no, it really, it really rocks. I said, "Oh yes, okay, there we go." And this so is I'm looking forward to it. This is an extensive tour. I mean, it starts in Saskatchewan. You got dates in Alberta. You got dates in BC. You're all over this country for what four or five months, I think, right? Yeah, we're we're doing a lot of shows. Uh, in Canada, we're not going into the states. Uh, I'm not ready for that, so uh, I had to turn down uh, uh, some shows there. Unfortunately, we have a lot of friends uh, south of the border, 
that are looking forward to the band for the last few years to come back, but not right now. I'm just still not comfortable with traveling internationally. But in Canada, yeah, we're going to be going uh, lots of places this summer. What have you been up to for the past couple of years? I know you're still releasing music. Um, I don't know how to describe it. Uh, statement songs, protest songs, I'm not sure. I know you've, uh, with Indigenous Schools Discoveries, the most recent one about Ukraine. Um, just tell us how you've spent the past couple of years. Well, that, that's it. I've done a, you know, a lot of writing. I've recorded uh, a record, um, a songwriter's record, for lack of a, another word, that's coming out on my birthday, which is June 23rd. Uh, and that's uh, called Long Pants. And that deals with some mature subjects. Uh, you're right. The, the last one I released uh, was uh, f- called For Ukraine. Yeah. And um, and I was just like everybody else, just watching, you know, and seeing and hearing what was going on over there with Russia invading Ukraine. And it's just so horrifying uh, and, and sad for the people of Ukraine. So I, 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 I wasn't going to write anything because I don't really get into politics no. and religion no. with April Wine ever, 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 ever. But this one, this one, it hurt to see what was going on with the children and the people without food, water, medication, all the rest of it. I got a hold of the president of the Canada-Ukraine Congress. We had a a few talks since then. Uh, The song has been written. I recorded it and did a video all within seven days and sent it out there, and it's being used a lot, and I'm doing some live appearances around that and a lot of interviews. Almost every day is Zooms and interviews around uh, Ukraine, uh, the song Ukraine, and uh, other things like April Wine coming back out on the road. So... I've been busy with that, you know, and I and I did write about the miss, you know, the 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 uh, the unmarked graves that were discovered of the of the yeah. Uh, yeah. indigenous children from the residential school system. And I mean, I I just finished a song yesterday, uh, and Tom um, uh, Jackson is part of it, as a matter of fact. Okay, and and it's about missing and murdered uh, indigenous women, and that's called "Darling, Where Are You." These are on the record, as well as family songs about family and so forth. You know, my partner's native, and, and so when I see her hurting and crying and suffering, it's, it's in my house, it's where I live, and we're family, and uh, so it affects me as well. Miles, that's interesting to me, because like you say, I mean, you, you're just a straight-ahead rock and roll band for so long, and one of the best to ever do it. Um, to make this change this late in the career, um, was it hard, or is it something that you just felt, you know what, I have a voice, and this is something that I have to do? Well, yes, I, I, you know, this, you know, I, about four or five years ago, even a little longer, I guess, I said to April Wine, I said, I'm tired of being on the road with April Wine. That's all I do, and I want to continue, but I want to do less live. So I said I have other things to do, and I wrote a book called Just Between You and Me, bestseller, and bestseller on the bestseller Toronto Globe and Mail. Uh, and it was all. And I wrote a second book called Elvis and Tiger, which is fiction. I wrote two and at least two blues records: Miles Goodwin and Friends of the Blues, one and two. Um, one uh, um, w- w- was nominated for Blues Album of the Year at the Junos. I won the East Coast uh, Music uh, Awards for Blues Album of the Year two years in a row. And so they were very, and they were successful outside of Canada. They were successful not only in the U.S. but over in Europe as well. So. Uh, that was really nice because I had not done blues before. So, I mean, there's other things besides what's in April 1, and I knew it. And I said, I, I have to do other things while I still can. And so now I'm having my cake. I'm eating it, too. I've got April 1. I've got my acoustic trio, which, which tours all over. 
and um, got some books written and some blues records done and more records coming down the road. So life is, you know, busy. You know, Miles, you say like it's all you've ever done, and uh, and, and I just got a, we're getting a ton of texts from the listeners. This one says the first vinyl album I ever bought was April Wine's First Glance, and that tour for First Glance album was my first rock show back in '78. Tell Miles thanks for a good chunk of the soundtrack of my life. Um, this listener, I'm dating myself, but April Wine performed at my high school dance in around 1976, Stanley High School in New Brunswick. Um, people have just responded all morning when I mentioned that you were going to be here. And, I know, and you know, you say you're tired of being April Wine. You want to do something different. Um, we want to hear those songs. When you go out on stage, is that a battle for you? I mean, you've played them so many times. What's your relationship to Roller, Just Between You and Me, all those iconic songs that you've probably played a million times? What, how do you feel about them today? I feel great about them. You know, in my acoustic trio, I do Just Between You and Me. I do You Won't Dance With Me and Wouldn't Want to Lose Your Love and I'm on Fire For You and Tonight's a Wonderful Night to Fall in Love and It Could Have Been a Lady and Bad Side of the Moon yeah. and blah, 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 blah. I don't do roller because I need the energy of April Wine. So <laughs> with April Wine, we're doing April Wine songs. We're not doing any of my uh, other songs. We're not doing blues or, or anything like that. It's April Wine and roller. And I'm, I'm proud of the songs. I, I love doing them. I can still, still hit the bye, 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 byes at the end of roller. So, hey, why not? You know? Uh, so, yeah, I love playing them. And, and you know, and that follow, I, I appreciate what you said that fellow had to say about, you know, seeing April Wine in 77 or 8, whatever. But Standback actually came out in 1975. And so he might have seen us closer to 75 because after, right after that, we had like the whole world's going crazy with the big mache mad hatter touring across the country. <laughs> so I think he probably saw us a couple of years. Well, he said first glance. Oh, I thought you said, I heard Stand Back. No, first glance in 78. It was the first con- rock oh, concert. The, oh, my goodness. The tour I, wow. I better check my hearing before I get out west there, you know. Uh, <laughs> I thought he said Stand Back. First glance, yep, 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 yep. But we weren't playing high schools after that, I can nope. assure you. Um, we absolutely not, no. Not, not in the years that, the years that he mentioned. We weren't playing high schools, no. Um, hey, Miles, I, I, I know it's a, it's an extensive tour, and you're here uh, in the Edmonton area on May 7th at uh, River Cree, uh, just outside of mm-hmm. the city. And I noticed on your website yeah. there's some, also some TBAs in Alberta. So this, this tour is still being put together. There's still a chance you may show up in Calgary or Fort McMurray or Lethbridge, right? Well, I, yeah, I mean, there's a chance. Yeah, of course there is, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, absolutely, I, I, the TVA is to be announced, as as you know, and uh, we'll see. Um, um, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't. I don't really know any more than you do right now. Uh, I mean, I okay every day. I go through every single show, um, and uh, I, you know, maybe some of the shows we've confirmed aren't up on our website right now. I don't know. It's usually kept pretty current, but we could be. We could be. Uh, we have a, a bunch of Ontario shows. Uh, are some Ontario shows coming up that haven't been announced. I know that. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm not sure. Last one for you, and it's a great question, because I think I know the answer, which is pretty funny. Randy says, how did they pick the name April Wine? Oh, well, it's it's not. I don't know if it's funny or not, but really one of the original members in the band, David Henman, um, he suggested April Wine. And he was kind of more the leader than anybody uh, in the very beginning. And 
you know, it's the kind of name I, I didn't care for it because it, it didn't have much, you know, didn't mean anything. And that's exactly why right. he suggested it, because it didn't suggest anything hard like rock, like Led Zeppelin or Black Sabbath. They say, yeah, that's rock. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and really the April wine works because of the legacy, you know, because of the music. I mean, in the early days, we were checking into hotels and I'm not kidding. I mean, you know, the guy at the desk is saying, well, uh, okay, where's April wine? Uh, we have her listed. And you say, no, <laughs> no, that's us, <laughs> you know. But uh, we've we, we've 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 turned into a into a good name, if you will. You know. Yeah, no doubt you have absolutely uh, through years and years of uh, tremendous music. Uh, Miles, can't wait to see you out on the road. And thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate your time. Oh yeah, thank you very 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 much. And I hope it's nice and warm out there for you and for us when we get out there. It will be. It for will sooner. be. Okay. Cheers. <laughs> Take care. Thanks, Miles. Bye bye. Miles Goodwin, lead singer. Founding member of legendary Canadian rock and roll band, April Wine. And yeah, I was reading when you asked the question, you know, how did they come up with the name April Wine? It was just two words that sounded good together. That's it. There's no meaning to it. There's no story behind it. There's nothing. It's just, uh, I don't know, April Wine. And you know what? He's right, because it's become iconic, right? It's just... uh, I don't know. I was thinking about this yesterday, and I don't know where April Wine fits. If you want to put together the hierarchy of Canadian classic rock, where does April... For me, they're they're above Trooper, and I know some people would probably disagree with that. Um, are they bigger than, say, Loverboy? I don't know. Uh, Rush, probably not. But, I mean, where do they fit in terms of great, iconic Canadian rock and roll acts? They're pretty close to the top. Uh, these guys were massive, massive, massive artists back in the late 70s, early 80s. Just huge. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.